everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IJ nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hey, everyone. My guest today is Courtney Walls. She's been an IBD warrior since 2006 and is passionate about sharing her story and experiences to help inspire others on their own journey. She shares the ups and downs of life with IBD, showing that despite this illness, you can achieve your dreams. Thank you so much for joining me today, Courtney, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's go ahead and jump right in. And why don't you start us off by sharing your IBD story and talk about how and when you were diagnosed. Right. So um, I was originally diagnosed in 2006 um, when I was in college at UW Oshkosh. Um, I was studying psychology. Um, and, you know, I think it was over the summer. So like a break between school, I started just having a lot of crampy abdominal pain, urgency, um, bloody stools up to like 20 times a day, like so many other people's story, right? Yeah, I've certainly <laughs> so, been there. <laughs> um, went to go see, you know, a local GI clinic. Um, they scheduled the colonoscopy, woke up, told me I had ulcerative colitis. So I really didn't have like the sort of back and forth that a lot of other patients have or trouble getting a diagnosis. I woke up. Um, they told me I had moderate to severe UC. Um, and they told me two things. And I was probably at that time, like 21. Um, they told me, you're going to need to make sure you have good insurance and you're going to need to change your diet. But they gave me no guidance on how I would need to change my diet. Um, so I just kind of was flying by the seat in my pants there after that. Um, Had you ever even heard of ulcerative colitis before? I actually had, um, not too long before my diagnosis, um, my aunt on my mom's side was also diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Um, so I had just barely heard of it, but boom, then it hits me too. So, um, it wasn't completely new to me, but I will say like in the initial, um, kind of consultations, I didn't receive a lot of guidance about nutrition, um, I just had quick follow-up doctor visits, um, prescribed Asacol when the symptoms were um, a little bit more severe. I would do Entacort. Mm-hmm. I've been lucky to not have been put on prednisone a whole lot in my experience. Um, but, um, you know, that initial um, kind of diagnosis and experience with the UC, um, I just went back to living my normal life. Um, I didn't, it felt like barely a blip on the radar, like, okay, I'll be able to control this with medication. Um, went back to my job um, at a daycare at that time, went back, finished up my senior year of college, um, and then went on to grad school. So I ended up attending UW-Milwaukee for um, educational psychology. And um, it was my second semester had just started that I had the most serious flare that I had had ever. Um, Had the medications been helping up till that point or had you kind of just learned to kind of, like a lot of us, you just kind of, it it doesn't help 100%, but you kind of find a way to live around it and live life. (laughs) Yeah, I I think actually initially they were probably helping. Um, 
I have this sort of history of peaks and valleys. So I have times where I am quite well, and you would not probably know that I had any kind of illness, and then I just crash and burn. So when I get sick, I get sick hard. (laughs) And that's sort of been my experience. So, um, you know, it, it was sort of the kind of flare where you go to the bathroom, go lay on the couch, because I couldn't tolerate sleeping in the bed. That just like flat position was very hard on me. I don't know if others have that experience, but I liked being somewhat elevated on the couch. Um, But, you know, you'd go to the bathroom, go to the couch, and the moment you sat down, I have to go again. (laughs) So there was, it was sleepless nights. It was just no relief. And I was supposed to go on a vacation with my family. And um, I was kind of hoping the symptoms would subside and I'd still be able to go on that vacation. Um, But it just got to the point where I was like, I've got to go to the hospital. Um, And I'd heard others, you know, when I shared with people I had ulcerative colitis, they were like, oh, my roommate had that. Like she had to go to the hospital. I was like, oh, I've never had that happen. So I was like, oh, I think it's time. (laughs) So... I did go to a hospital um, near my hometown, which is Kenosha, Wisconsin. And um, I did that primarily to be like closer to family, other friends and support systems. Um, But it was a pretty bad experience. What happened? In what way was it bad? Just bad care, bad support? So um, this was a hospital that was um, affiliated with the GI clinic that had initially been treating me. So I was able to see, you know, my GI doctor, but it was also a weekend. So got in on like a Friday and then doctors rotate. So it was like, I was seeing a new person each day. So instead of somebody having kind of like a continuous picture, I think that each person that walked in the room was like, oh my God, you look awful. And I'm like, really? Because I feel better than yesterday. Um, So I feel like they initially started me on IV steroids, um, IV antibiotics. And I think that they just got more and more aggressive with the antibiotics um, when I felt that I had been improving. And um, then I started taking a downturn again. And C. diffs showed up in my stool. So, I mean, I know that like steroids and antibiotics are generally the um, prescribed course of treatment for somebody in the hospital with a flare, but it's my personal opinion that perhaps because it wasn't like continuous care from the same doctor that it may have been a bit too aggressive. So when the C. diff came, everything just went downhill. (laughs) Um, I was in so much pain. My stomach dilated like at this point, I think I had lost close to 30 pounds. I was about 104. And um, my stomach was huge. I looked just like completely pregnant (laughs) is all I can really describe it. Um, And every time that I, you know, would go to the toilet, it would just be filled with blood. I also, you know, had all the biohazard markers. People had to like wear robes into my room. I felt like I was on, what was it, outbreak? That was a coming out like not too soon before that. So um, it was a weird experience to have like gone from, okay, I have all sort of colitis, but I'm hoping to, okay, now I'm like in seclusion and people can't come in without gowns and precautions and horribly sick. Um, This is where I really like had a bad experience. For one, 
I remember one particular experience where I was in so much pain on the toilet. I had to pull the um, help, you know, the little thing. Yeah, the little rope, (laughs) the the red rope. rope (laughs) To get a nurse. And she goes, oh, my God, do you have your period? And I'm like, do you even know why I'm here? Like, I have ulcerative colitis. This would be one of the symptoms. So please take care of me and help me back to bed. Um, but the other thing that ended up happening, and this was after C. diff had shown up in my stool. So I was clearly sick. Um, I was actually given a psychiatric consult because a family member had shared that in the past I'd had a bit of a history with disordered eating. And now the doctors were of the mind that this is all in my head and it's really just that she's refusing to eat. And I... I don't even know how we got there with the condition that I was in because it was so clearly a physical illness and a very serious one at that point. Especially with all the blood in the in the <laughs> stool and the toilet and C. Yeah. diff, it blows my mind every time I hear it. And I hear similar stories from people that I've interviewed and just they're dismissed, they're blown off. And it's like, how can our doctors just then say it's in your head that you have an eating disorder? Yeah, (laughs) that explains it. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, So it was very odd because they actually discharged me. So I was discharged in worse condition than I had entered the hospital. And the C. diff hadn't even resolved, had it? No, the the C. diff was still there. So they sent me home on vancomycin and um, 20 other pills a day. And um, I, I remember very clearly the doctor who was treating me saying, we just don't know, you know, what else to do for you. And I, I felt pretty abandoned, but I also, you know, I'm very cautious as a person. I'm very risk averse. That's a, sort of always been the case. And I think the illness has made it a lot worse. But um, I went home at this point. Um, Plus, fast forward, it's spring break, so I have a nice little natural break from school to sort of recuperate. Um, And was this one or two years after your initial diagnosis? About a year and a half. Mm -hmm. So I was at my mom's house trying to recuperate, um, but, you know, not improving at all. And I remember my dad encouraging me to get a second opinion, and I was actually quite resistant to it. I was like, no, you know, I'm on this course of treatment. Like, let's try to see, like, if I improve. But he ended up making an appointment with me. Um, It was at Fratered in the Medical College of Wisconsin, so it's more of like a teaching, research-affiliated hospital. Um, And um, I'm so glad (laughs) that we went because, you know, it was a GI consult, He assessed me, left the room, and came back with a guy with surgical, um, you know, the surgical gown. I had known that surgery was something that could happen Mm -hmm. with ulcerative colitis. But, you know, you always think, oh, that's the kind of thing that happens to someone else. So when he walked in, I think I kind of knew it was (laughs) my fate was sealed. (laughs) But, oh, my goodness, that man was amazing. He um, was so, his bedside manner, you know, he was, he was there with me. He could tell that I was scared. So not only was he sort of like medically explaining um, 
what he planned to do, but he was such a comfort. That's amazing. What a stark contrast to the previous hospital right before that. Yes. (laughs) So he explained to me um, that we needed to take my colon out. He explained to me that some of the medications that I had been prescribed um, were antidiarrheals and with C. diff were actually putting me at risk for perforation. And because I was also on pain pills, I probably wouldn't have felt it. If I felt anything, I might have felt relief and I would have been dead. Wow. So (laughs) that was something. (laughs) So how did you process that information? Because did you have any, was your family with you at the time or were you just at the hospital? Did you have parents that came along with you? My dad came with me. But I think, you know, I, I've shared a lot on my Instagram account that anxiety is a big part of my life, my struggles, but I'm good in a crisis. Like you just go into that mode where it's like, okay, tell me what I need to do. And I just like, I get through it. Like a crisis, I, I'm fine. (laughs) It's when life is normal that my mind starts playing tricks on me. Um, so he, you know, explained like the three-step J-pouch procedure. Um, so I think that was a bit of a comfort because it was obviously a shock to walk in, find out that you're going to need a colectomy, find out you're going to need an ostomy bag. But um, at my age, um, I, I think knowing that it would be temporary and this man had a plan um, was very comforting. So they got me into a room. I think we did some... IV steroids, maybe antibiotics overnight. And they said, like, you know, unless the swelling goes down substantially, we're going to do a colectomy first thing in the morning. Um, And they came in to check my tummy in the morning. And I just remember saying, just take it out. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that was their plan, too. So I think that the um, operation was very successful. Um, I remember... Dr. Ludwig, we're allowed to say names. <laughs> you can say names, especially if it's a positive name. No. <laughs> yeah, no, he, Dr. Ludwig, he's amazing. Um, I do think he still works there, um, but um, he was so cute. He was like, hey, I've got good news. Um, so you gained three pounds overnight. Um, I'm like, okay, because I'd lost a lot of weight. And he's like, but then we took your colon out and you lost three. <laughs> So we're right back where we were. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> so he he told me it was a bad colon. They threw it in the trash. Um, and I actually remember having a follow-up with the GI that I had seen. And he told me he had a picture of my colon in his office because it was the worst one he'd ever seen in terms of just like damage and like where it was at. And I'm just like, well, I'll wear that badge proudly. <laughs> Did he show you the picture? Did you get to see it? No, he did not show me um, (laughs) because I don't know if I would have wanted to. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that was definitely an ordeal and a big turning point in my UC Crohn's journey because, you know, I had thought, okay, I'll cope. And this was like a wake up call. Like this is probably going to be a huge part of my life going forward. Mm hmm. So the J-pouch procedure, um, it can be performed in, I think, two or three steps, but we did the three steps. So um, I scheduled the loop ileostomy on another break from school, and 
Loop ileostomies are my least favorite kind of ileostomy. I feel like they're a little bit higher output, um, a little bit crankier, <laughs> but... And what's the difference for people who are listening? So um, when you have an end ileostomy, that's sort of the end of your or your small intestine attached to the outside of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they construct the J-pouch, and often if they do like um, a resection or other sorts of kind of like mid-intestinal surgery, it's sort of like pulling out a piece further up your digestive tract, and there's two holes, one for output, um, but also one going back down into your body um, because you'll still have intact intestine, um, you know, connecting to your rectum, or I didn't have one. So what they were doing for me basically was taking the lower end of my intestine and creating a J pouch. Um, Just like it sounds in the shape of a J, they sew it up to the rectal cuff and you're able to use the bathroom like a a quote-unquote normal person. Um, You don't have to rely on the external ostomy appliance. Um, But in that sort of like in-between stage, you have that loop ileostomy, which because it's a little higher in your digestive tract, you're not absorbing quite as much food as with an end ileostomy. Um, so it, for me, it tends to be higher output, much more liquidy, um, and a little bit more difficult to manage in terms of like leaks and dehydration. But I had another sort of, um, complication occur when I had my loop ileostomy. I ended up having a lot of crampy abdominal pain. My family has like this tell. So I walk hunched over. So I kind of grab my stomach and like, I'm just bent over and this could be at the grocery store, you know, wherever. (laughs) And it's the only way I really know to manage the pain. So I started doing that and my mom had been with me. So we decided to go once again to freighter and they admitted me with a suspected recurrence of the C. diff in my small intestine, which they didn't necessarily share this with me, but I'm one of those patients, whether it's good or bad, I Google everything, but I'm also, you know, like academic minded. So when I Google, I try to look for journal articles. Um, So what I found is that C. diff of the small intestine is pretty rare. So I ended up having to irrigate my ostomy with vancomycin because if I were, you know, in the hospital, they can give you IV vancomycin, but When I left, if I had taken a pill, it would have just come out my ostomy. It wouldn't have gotten to the lower section, which was where the infection actually was. So I had to put like a catheter into, I think, the distal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's two two holes. The one that would go down so that I could flow vancomycin into my pouch. I was instructed to hold it as long as I could. So the medicine could do its work before releasing. And I had to do that three times a day for two weeks. And I'm going to grad school. Like, it was tough. A medical supply van came, dropped off a bunch of jugs of vancomycin. And they were just kind of like aligned in the fridge like Gatorade bottles. Totally normal. (laughs) Um, But it, it worked. So once again, you know, the care that I received at Freighter was amazing. I, I think it's a pretty unique experience that I had, that C. diff of the small bowel, but we made it through that one too. And we made it to takedown. So I was able to have, you know, 
my ileostomy reversed, um, lived J pouch life, and true to form, not too long after takedown, I was back in my surgeon's office um, complaining of crampy abdominal pain, urgency, but also difficulty evacuating. So I love that combination, the urgency and the difficulty. <laughs> so it's frustrating <laughs> and a lot of pain. Yeah. So he took a look. Um, I didn't get the Crohn's diagnosis right then, but I did hear him kind of wince and say, oh, this looks like IBD. Do they think it was both? Because it took, I think, about four years after that surgery, three, four years for you to get that official Crohn's. Do they think Mm -hmm. it was both? Because some people do have both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. Yeah. Well, I know that they did take care because obviously the colectomy was emergency, but there were procedures between my various steps of the J pouch where they would examine the small intestine and they were pretty sure that I was clear of Crohn's. So there was no suspicion of Crohn's. They just thought I had a bad case of ulcerative colitis. So I don't know that it had been both, but I just, you know, he was like, oh, this looks like it might be IBD. We're going to have to keep an eye on this, but they treated it as pouchitis. And I would have maybe a couple of times a year episodes of pouchitis, which, I mean, it feels just like ulcerative colitis. So in a way, I was happy to have gone through this three-step J-pouch procedure um, and to be able to, you know, have that internal pouch. But I was also kind of like, I'm still sick. (laughs) And, you know, just the same as with like a UC flare, like some were worse than others. So I had another flare um, of pouchitis, basically, that was severe enough that I ended up going into the hospital. And with that scope, um, as an inpatient, you know how they give you twilight sleep? Mm-hmm. So like, for some of us, it's not quite enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I was um, somewhat awake aware. <laughs> and I actually can remember seeing the inside of my intestine projected up on a screen, foggy, very foggy. But I remember the doctor saying, oh, this was Crohn's. And I, in my pseudo slumber state, corrected them and said, no, I don't have Crohn's. They've already checked for that. (laughs) And I don't remember anything after that. They're like, push more medication. (laughs) I have a feeling the anesthesiologist was like, "Mm, more. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I've I've had a, a couple similar episodes, usually during colonoscopies. I've got, you know, one or two where I kind of came awake and like you, I could see the screen or I could hear the mm-hmm. conversation and I would reply back. And then all of a sudden it's like, let's give her some more drugs. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to be a talker. So. <laughs> um. But yeah, when I actually did wake up from the procedure and the doctor who performed it briefed me, I cried because everything that I had heard up to that point was, if you have Crohn's disease, you're not a candidate for J-pouch surgery. Um, And she's like, that's true. Like, it's probably not something we would have done had we known, but it doesn't mean we're taking your pouch out before you leave the hospital. Like, you can continue um, to live with your J-pouch. You might have ups and downs. It might be a bit more difficult road than 
um, you know, somebody without Crohn's disease. But as long as it's working for you, you can keep it. So I was like, okay, <laughs> we can we can deal. So what happened at that point? Were you on medications? Did they change change medications now that you had had the J pouch confirmed it's Crohn's? And then what did treatment look like at that point? Yeah. So um, with the Crohn's diagnosis, it went from, you know, the occasional steroids and antibiotics with pouchitis um, to Humira. Mm. So I was introduced to biologics. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who are a little bit hesitant to take those types of medications for various reasons. But I've always sort of been like, I'm in pain. And if you have something that can end that, I'm on board. (laughs) So I've always been very open to the different treatments that doctors are able to offer me. And I trust their process where they've weighed the pros and cons and sort of stepped up to different medications. Um, So I did start taking Humira. Learning to um, inject it was a little bit of a challenge. I remember working, I was working in the financial aid office at UW-Milwaukee at the time. And one of our student workers um, was going to school to be a nurse. And I asked her to give me the injection. And she didn't realize she needed to hold it there a little while. (laughs) So she like kind of just popped it in and came out. All the medicine was everywhere. (laughs) And I was just like, all right, I'll try better. I'll try to do it on my own next time. (laughs) But thank you. Did you find it worked better? I think you can do it. I had Humira for a while. You could do it in the legs, like your thigh or abdomen. Did you find one spot better than the other? Did you try them all? I (laughs) rotated. No, I rotated legs. I did not even want to inject my stomach because it already hurt. So I didn't feel like stabbing it. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, like looking back, I was on Humira um, for quite a few years. I'm not sure how many. I don't know if it ever worked for me, Mm -hmm. to be completely honest. I think, like you mentioned earlier, we get used to living with a certain level of symptoms and just sort of accept it. So I think I thought of Humira as the drug that would keep me out of the hospital, but I never really reached remission if any of the time that I've had a J-pouch. I always had to be careful what I ate. Um, I've always been a somewhat active person, but I just, you know, I was a runner. So I would run and I would squeeze my butt cheeks together so tight to keep everything inside for however many miles I was doing that day. That's difficult running. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Great for your glutes. (laughs) Indeed. So you ended up switching to Remicade, is that right, after Humira? Yeah, that was quite a while later. So I did, you know, I don't want to paint it as like a bad period of my life because I was I was doing okay. I joined Team Challenge. I did a half marathon in Vegas. I did a half marathon in Napa. I did one fundraiser, half marathon, half marathon on a treadmill in a bar which was great. So obviously I was healthy enough to do those things. I loved being involved in team challenge and the Crohn's and Colitis foundation. Um, found like I, I felt like I found my like fam. (laughs) So team challenge Wisconsin was a great experience for me. But another dream that I had always had was moving to Arizona. So I, 
finally worked up the courage because like there's a lot of factors to consider. I was single, you know, I was working, but I wasn't making a huge amount of money. And moving can be an expensive endeavor. So I finally landed a very similar position um, at Arizona State University working in their financial aid office and set everything up so that I was able to move across the country. One of the things that was very scary to me was continuity of care. How do I know that I have like a good GI provider um, in this new state? And my um, team at Freighter wrote down a name, Dr. Garudu, um, on a piece of paper and then underneath it, Mayo Clinic. And I was like, yeah, right. Like, I'm going to be able to go to Mayo Clinic. I doubt my insurance will cover that. Um, I was in my employee benefits orientation. And, you know, I probably could have found all this material online. But we learned in our benefits orientation that ASU actually has a partnership with the Mayo Clinic. So all of our insurance plans include their providers. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> like I could have cried. I was so happy to know because I'd had the bad experience at a different hospital. And I wanted to continue to have that sort of level of care that was a little bit more research-based. And I was really happy to be able to continue my treatment at the Mayo Clinic. So that was great. But when I moved to Arizona, I started having new problems. So the pouchitis continued, but something that I've recently had the courage to share on my Instagram account was my experience with a rectovaginal fistula. So <laughs> when you realize that's going on, um, it's a little bit alarming. Yeah. So whether I was sick enough to really need to go to the ER, I was certainly concerned enough. So um, went to the ER they weren't sure that that was going on, but they did prescribe an antibiotic um, because I would see that the symptoms of discharge with the fistula were obviously a lot more when I was flaring and symptomatic. So they needed to treat the pouchitis and scheduled a few follow-up scopes and tests. But my team did confirm that I had a rectovaginal fistula and tried a couple different ways of treating it, but one of the ways was medically. So Remicade, um, I believe, is actually known for um, being one of the medications that's a little bit better at healing fistulas. So that was where I had that move from the Humira to the Remicade. Did you find better relief that with the Remicade? Did the fistula heal and resolve? Um, so I would say, like... Remicade has been one of the biggest game changers in my treatment. To answer your question, no, it did not immediately resolve the fistula. But what I found was greater relief of my symptoms than I'd ever experienced on Humira. Um, and I also had fewer side effects. I don't know if others have experienced, but I used to get, they told me it wasn't pink eye. It was just sort of an overgrowth of the bacteria that your eye naturally has. So like I'd get red inflamed eyes all the time. And 
I was just like, okay, well, I'm immune suppressed. So I guess this is another thing I have to deal with. Since I've switched to Remicade, that's not happened. That's wonderful. Yeah, I've really enjoyed, you know, I think doctors kind of save that um, sort of like infusion type therapy till others have failed you. But I don't mind going in for the infusion. I stay busy. And to be honest, it's a few hours of relaxation every couple of weeks. Um, Looking on so the bright I do enjoy side. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I found relief to my symptoms, but the fistula was pretty persistent. And I think that by the time that we were working to treat it, it had just gotten so large that it's not going to close from medical management because, you know, you're always putting food, your body has natural mucus. So there was just a constant flow. Um, so I don't know how something closes in that case. So we tried, you know, CTAN placement um, because I think that that's usually the first step, allowing mucus to train, drain so like an abscess isn't created. But I was never able to like reach healing around that. Um, we tried a fistula plug, which came out about three days after <laughs> it was placed. So the one that um, we tried sort of like last resort, so to speak, was Marsha's flap surgery. And if I'm not pronouncing that right, I apologize. <laughs> um, I see these words. I don't always necessarily know how to pronounce them. But, you know, if others aren't familiar, they actually take a piece of your skin from your labia and kind of sew that fat pad, they've explained it, over the fistula. And something about your body's own circulation and blood flow is supposed to promote healing with that surgery. So it was it was a kind of dual gyno-colorectal combined forces. But I was hopeful because I've been through a couple different, you know, attempts at fixing this fistula. And I haven't really talked about it, but like living with it was pretty brutal. Was it painful as well as inconvenient? It was all of the above. So, and just like all other parts of my illness, it ebbs and flows, right? and goes up as I become more symptomatic. But, you know, there were times when I was very symptomatic, having a lot of the crampy abdominal pain and urgency. And this is when your output becomes more watery and you you don't have anal sphincters in that part of your body. So there's nothing to hold it in. And in my 30s, I was reduced to wearing adult diapers, definitely to bed, but also often to work. If I felt like it was, you know, a day I wasn't feeling great and suspected that this might happen. And it's just so hard on your self-esteem. As well as I was still single. (laughs) So I was like, how am I ever going to date? Like, how am I ever going to explain this to somebody? So it, it it was a tough experience to go through. But I was very hopeful with that surgery. And I'll explain how that went. But I guess I should back up because, like I mentioned, um, I was a little bit worried about dating and, you know, who who might accept me with all of these different sort of baggage that I'm carrying. But I actually ended up um, going on a date with a coworker. 
Um, I think we'd had a little, a little bit of like an office flirtation and I knew he liked me, but you know, he asked me out on a date. We hit it off. Fantastic man. Um, and I shared with him, you know, I was like, I feel like there could be something here. So I need to be very honest with you. I've got this disease. There's a lot of things going on with it that are not pretty. (laughs) And I would understand if that's not something you want to really (laughs) deal with um, or sign up for. How long into your kind of dating with them did you have the conversation? I'm assuming you didn't tell him this on the first date, or maybe you did, but... (laughs) No, I didn't tell him this on the first date. Um, But, you know, people are so corny, like when you know, you know, but it's true. So I would say maybe like three weeks in, I knew that this was probably a relationship that was going somewhere. So I knew that I needed to be honest um, because you can't hide those things forever. (laughs) So um, I was terrified and he was nothing but supportive. It wasn't any sort of like shock or even like grossed out vibes I was getting from him. It was just like care, compassion. How can I support you? And he's my husband now. That's awesome. That is so (laughs) awesome. So he's great. Um, And the reason I felt like I needed to kind of go back to that is by the time I was going through Marsha's flat surgery, he was a part of my life. Um, So we were looking forward to the surgery and um, me having some relief to some of these symptoms. It was also during the pandemic. So I had been scheduled for it, I think in like March or April and hospitals shut down for elective surgeries. Um, But my my colorectal surgeon um, reassured me that, you know, as soon as we're able to, we're gonna get you in. Um, So I think we ended up doing it in June, right? When hospitals reopened for elective surgeries. And I thought it was odd. (laughs) They sent me home the same day. I follow a bunch of friends on Instagram who are in like the hospital for almost a week with the surgery, but it's okay. Um, And my mom and aunt were in town. um, And I was taking Cipro and Flagyl, um, which again, very typical antibiotics for any kind of GI um, issues. So probably totally normal to have been described them post-op to prevent infection. Um, but I just did not feel good. And my mom was really encouraging me to eat. Um, I would try to eat, um, but it just, it didn't feel like it was going anywhere and, um, very bloated and discomfort in my stomach. And then I started just vomiting. So everybody was telling me eat, drink, eat, drink, and everything I put in my mouth, I started throwing up. So the more that I tried to treat it in that way, the more time I was spending throwing up and I eventually um, ripped my my stitches from vomiting. So at that time, Chris took me to the ER and I got a little bit of pushback from the residents. They didn't think it was a particularly emergent situation, but as soon as they brought um, kind of like the actual 
colorectal staff into the decision making. They decided to admit me and I did not have an ostomy after my Marsh's flap surgery, but because I had torn my stitches and um, now, you know, definitely risks for infection if you just have stool (laughs) flowing out, they needed to divert me. Um, That would be the only way that that area could successfully heal. So I, I guess I was not surprised when my surgeon came into my room and told me, that the plan was to put up a temporary ostomy um, and that, you know, there was a chance that it would heal successfully just with the diversion, Um, no traffic flow, so to speak. But, um, you know, I went through that surgery. I think when you wake up with an ostomy, it's very shocking. You, it's a little bit like an out of body experience no pun intended, because a piece of your intestine is actually outside your body. And that, you know, you're in pain, you're on morphine, but it's a wild experience. But you know what? I'd done it before. So it wasn't like I I was so accepting of my second ostomy. I knew it was what my body needed to heal. I knew I could manage because it was something that I had done in the past as I was going through the uh, the J-pouch surgery steps. So I was just grateful, but it was still a rough hospital stay because even after that, um, I had a blockage. So we had to put me on an NG tube and of all the things that I've been through, um, the NG tube was, I hated it. Um, and I think I was a little confused about what it was in the beginning. I thought it was a feeding tube, but it's actually the reverse So when you have a blockage, it's actually sucking contents out of your stomach. Um, Because even if you're not eating, you know, that NPO, nothing for oral diet that they put you on in the hospital, your body is still producing mucus. And if you have a blockage, there's nowhere for it to go. So it was sort of sucking it out um, to resolve my symptoms. But I'm usually a pretty good patient. I was a bad patient that day. This is where my anxiety kicks in. I was convinced that I was going to choke on it. It's got to be an incredibly uncomfortable feeling. Do they give you anything for the, the pain or to kind of numb it? It, um, it actually wasn't that hard to get in. Um, they just have you like gulp water and they put it down your nose, down your throat. Um, but once it was in... Um, it's a thin, thin tube, just like IV, IV tubing, but I felt like it had ridges. Like, I felt like it was, like, scratching my throat. Um, so they do give you this, like, spray to kind of, but the spray doesn't get down to where you're feeling it. Like, it's just, like, the back of my mouth. <laughs> so, yeah. I actually, against doctor's advice, asked to be taken off of it. They wanted to keep me on it for 48 hours. Um we compromised at 12. (laughs) And um, they told me, they're like, you're going to be throwing up again. Like, so don't say we didn't tell you. (laughs) So um, apparently they were taking bets on how long it would take for me to puke. And I lasted almost a full day and only threw up once. So I don't know that I should be advocating going against doctor's advice. But I... It was your own journey, your experience, and your path that you needed. It was tough on me mentally. I 
I think that sometimes, like I mentioned before, I am so good at getting through a basis situation, but it's just like an additive effect, right? So there's only so much you can handle. And, you know, having a pretty serious surgery, having that surgery going wrong, having an unexpected ostomy, and now I'm on this NG tube. Like, I just think like that was maybe my breaking point and I drew a line and, you know, every patient has a right to sort of dictate their care. Um, it's just really important to take into consideration the advice of your doctors. And I was in the hospital, so I knew I was being, you know, looked after and everything like that. Um, but it, it, it ended up just fine. Um, but that was my one and only NG tube experience. Um, and I know others who've been on it much longer. So I actually feel like quite a baby complaining about my 12-hour experience. So after that visit, was was it supposed to be a temporary ostomy? Did it end up being a permanent ostomy? How did that, yeah. how did your journey go from there? So the intention definitely was for it to be a temporary ostomy. We had hoped that my body would naturally heal with the diversion, um, which it actually did. So we were very happy when a scope showed that, you know, we didn't see the fistula. Chris and I had gotten engaged and we were planning a wedding in November. And we had hoped that I'd be able to have the ostomy taken down right before our wedding. So before any kind of takedown, they'll usually do different tests to make sure that there's no leaks. So it's sort of like... um, I had to go in for two tests, one laying on my back, one laying on my stomach. Um, and then they do contrast and imaging and make sure that there aren't any leaks that aren't visible to the eye. So the tests actually were successful, but I have a feeling that the pressure um, of the fluid that they were injecting might have sort of gently reopened um, that persistent hole. So um, I developed an abscess about a week later, um, and it was really painful. So um, went in, um, my surgeon ended up having to drain it, and in that process, it was all opened up again. So unfortunately, the fistula was back. Um, And we had discussed, you know, if your body doesn't naturally heal, we can perhaps... um, do an additional attempt at the flap surgery. Um, You know, we can potentially even look at pouch revision, but sort of in in a follow-up visit to that abscess and the draining of the fistula, um, my surgeon and I just kind of had a heart-to-heart, like, this probably isn't going to work, is it? (laughs) And um, we talked a little bit about um, something I didn't mention I have a lot of stricturing um, at the end of the pouch, um, which makes emptying somewhat hard. And also, I had to stay very low residue with my diet because, you know, any kind of fiber would seem to just kind of back me up. And um, it was sort of our understanding that that stricture was contributing to backups, which was contributing to pouchitis. And when you know, fluid has nowhere to go, um, it's going to create a hole (laughs) and try to go somewhere. So 
really because of that um, tight structuring. He, he thought that it was looking like this ostomy was probably going to be permanent. And I was like, I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> but we didn't make the final call until more recently. Because um, I've actually, I, I asked him then, I'm like, is it urgent? You know, do I need to get this sick little J pouch taken out of me? Or can I kind of let it ride? Because I feel pretty good right now. And he's like, you can put it off until you can't put up with the symptoms anymore. So it's been three years um, since I had my temporary ostomy. And like, I can't emphasize enough the health benefits. I, I was able to do active things and work out before, but so often had to like cancel or push through the pain. And I don't feel that way anymore. Like there's considerations when you have an ostomy, right? You might want to have like backup supplies with you. Um, you might want to um, consider like if it gets really full, how am I going to empty it? What's my access to a restroom like? Um, but I've been able to like work out, do yoga, go on hikes, um, all those things. Um, and to be able to do them pain-free for the first time in uh, over 10 years, it, it just feels so great. So I was pretty happy with the quality of life that my ostomy has provided. And this is still the quote-unquote temporary ostomy yeah. that's given you this, right? So right. What, what is the deciding factor to what makes it permanent? Do you have to have another surgery or are you just waiting for a flare yeah. or an episode and going to let it ride while you feel good? And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's starting to get to the point where I'm feeling like I'm, I'm just delaying the inevitable. inevitable. But I've actually had a little bit of um, a push from my GI. Because the way that they treat me has a lot to do with this pouch that's living inside of me. And he's like, you know, you've got this organ inside of you that is offering you no benefits, but you have symptoms from it. So I still do. I get I call them clenchies um, where, you know, the pouch fills up with like mucus and, you know, it still has the stricture. So it's still difficult to empty and it'll contribute to urgency and pain. Um, so even though I have a diversion, my surgeon still dilates me like two to three times a year under anesthesia. So my GI is kind of like, you're going to need to keep doing this. When are you going to get your take? When are you just going to do it? <laughs> um, but they did um, kind of like teamed up and did a pouchoscopy and it looked really good. Um, and that, you know, I've talked about, I think Remicade's been a game-changing drug, but my surgeon was also like, you know, diversion, you're not having anything flowing through there. So that, that definitely contributes to the health that we're seeing in your pouch. But um, after already accepting that this ostomy was going to be permanent, that healthy scope just to kind of put in my head like, mm, do we have options? Um, and I remember I... I read my, all my op notes. So um, my colorectal surgeon actually used the word viable. And I was like, viable, huh? <laughs> so I had an appointment recently. Um, I did want to, you know, say, you know, since things are looking so good, 
are some of these other options back on the table? Could we possibly look at revising the pouch? Um, and we almost just sort of rehab the conversation that we had in the past where the damage is just so low that we could attempt a revision or a pouch advancement, but because the damage is so low, there's a danger to damage to my anal sphincters. So one potential risk is loss of continence. And even if the surgery were successful, I have Crohn's disease. So it's, it's almost like there's an expiration date, the new J pouch that they'd be constructing. So he's like, yeah, you might feel good for a year. You might feel good for up to 10 years, but there's risks. And um, he agreed that, especially given like the quality of life. Um, another thing he said is every surgery is a tax on your body. So let's say we do this um, and later we have to do some other things like you could, you could if you wanted, but my advice would be to go ahead and make it permanent. So in November, we're going to have the pouch excision. Um, so they'll take out the J pouch and fashion my current ostomy into an end ostomy. And that'll be it. It's permanent. There's really no going back from it, which is a little bit at the same time intimidating, but also a relief because I've been through so many surgeries. So I think this might be it. I think it's exciting to hear, especially knowing the quality of life that the temporary ostomy has given you for the past few years to finally have have it done. So congratulations. <laughs> I'll certainly yeah. be thinking of you as, as it approaches. I know you'll be sharing your story and experience through it, but that's a tough, yeah. it's a tough decision. And I'm glad you had a supportive surgeon, a doctor that guided you through that and helped you, helped you to kind of make that decision and let it be your decision. He's a good one too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been lucky to have a really great care team at the Mayo Clinic and my GI and colorectal are in close contact and work collaboratively and I think I also shared something recently, like after my healthy scope, I was a little worried I was going to be abandoned. Like, yes, I feel well, but, you know, you guys are my, like, comfort. Like, I I rely on you to stay healthy. And I, I thought, like, oh, well, she had a healthy scope. We're just not going to see her for a year. But instead, they made a bunch of follow-up appointments. One of them was with a GI dietitian just looking at ways to maximize my diet and health. One of the problems that I mentioned I deal with with sort of a loop-ish ileostomy like I currently have is dehydration. So we kind of revisited those um, low residue foods to kind of like soak up um, any kind of hydration, but also had the conversation about plain water usually isn't enough when you've had large parts of your intestine or your whole large intestine removed. So we do a combination of Gatorade, water, and salt. And I know there's a lot of commercially available beverages, but she just sort of shared that very simple recipe. So I just make my own homegrown version and I have seen the benefits. I'm, I would deal with pretty chronic migraines. Um, from dehydration primarily causing them? I assume so, because since I've um, started following her guidance and doing this kind of salt 
low rehydration solution. I don't have many migraines at all. What else is your diet looking like now, now that you're learning how to hydrate properly and with the ostomy? How has that changed your overall diet and the foods you eat? So when I had the J pouch, I was cautious of any residue. So even like a canned tomato sauce, right? There's going to be maybe kind of little skins of the tomato. Um, I even told my doctor once I was convinced like oregano would throw me into a flare. And, you know, some of this is just your body making incorrect associate or your mind making incorrect associations. I'm sure it wasn't the oregano. I'm sure I was already flaring and (laughs) I just associated the two because they were close together in time. But I was extremely cautious of any kind of residue. So the ostomy has really opened up my diet in that, you know, I love guacamole, but I used to make it without any kind of like tomato or onion. And now I include that. Salsa is more on the table. Um, And like I mentioned, like tomato sauces. I'm not so much pushing um, the chunks of tomato or the skins off to the side on my plate, but I'm just sort of like enjoying the meal. So I, I share with others, like, I could definitely expand my diet. Um, I, I've i been living low residue since probably 2008, which I don't think is the healthiest, the healthiest lifestyle, but it's working for me. And even though it's only like very small, like micro changes that I've made, it's very freeing because I used to really feel anxious just about every time I sat down to eat. And I don't feel that way anymore. I still wouldn't do like mushrooms and um, I still wouldn't have a salad. But just these little things that I've been able to enjoy without anxiety have been really nice. Kind of a funny story <laughs> is... When I originally created my account, I, I thought it might primarily center around food because it's a conversation that I'm always having with friends and family members. They're interested. They ask questions. And I, I felt like, you know what? I've got this figured out. I'm going to share what I know with other people. Got on Instagram, realized everybody's diet is totally different. And even though this is working for me, it's probably not even advisable for other people. Um, Maybe there's nuggets that I can share that might be helpful, but there's also a lot of people who have an education in this field, and they are the ones that should be speaking to this. So I kind of backed away from that a little bit. The other part is I I can't cook. I'm a horrible cook. So no recipes to share, no gourmet (laughs) meals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of my go-tos are like, um, I love making green chili chicken enchiladas. They're delicious. Um, I haven't shared that one yet, but I, I really have upped the protein since ostomy surgery. And that's dating all the way back to 2008. I used to be like all carbs, cinnamon toast crunch, <laughs> donuts. And since then, I love eggs. I love any kind of protein. Um Though I do kind of try to stay to like ground beef, shredded chicken. I've been a little bit more adventurous since I had my ostomy eating things like pork, but I'm still not quite comfortable with steak. And 
I'd love to, you know, continue to learn from others and grow and further expand my diet. But I also am sort of like, I can wait till after my next surgery because there's always a period of adaptation where you kind of are instructed to go back on that low residue diet after surgery um, and reintroduce food slowly. So I think after my final surgery, that's really where I'm going to be a little bit more open to trying to expand my diet and experiment with different foods. But it feels like a little bit of a waste to do it right now. Yeah. Plus, Um, I know it's hard too. like, I know for me, it took a long time to get over food anxiety. Even after I'd been in remission for a long time, it was still, I still found a lot of anxiety around trying foods that I used to associate as being very problematic. So it took a long time, even after I felt well for a long time to where I felt like I could release some of that. So, you know, with everything being still so fresh, I would say, and new in, in your journey, it's it's still kind of a a scary time, I would think, <laughs> to push the limits too far, to push that envelope. But Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wary of pushing too far, um, but I am happy with the small um, kind of ways that my diet has opened and just that I'm able to eat without anxiety for the first time in so long. How have you been able to, have you done anything to help manage that anxiety that you feel on a day-to-day basis? Is there anything, any kind of tips you've learned to to live with that or help you through certain times? I I had this conversation with um, another friend where I don't find, especially now, that a lot of my anxiety centers around food or even necessarily symptoms. Um, But I do think that I have a fair amount of PTSD that just contributes to like a general fight or flight response to just about any situation. I think we've all probably seen that meme where it's like an email is not an emergency, but I have that, right? So like work days are sometimes difficult for me to get through because um, I'll have like heart palpitations over just like minor decisions or how best to handle something. And I can feel overwhelmed pretty quickly by pretty minor decisions. And I've tried a couple different things. So one thing that I do is therapy. So I would use our employer-provided therapy um, when things were getting a little bit rough. And I found that um, sort of like short-term solution-focused therapy to be quite helpful but it's just like one of those things where you don't use it, you lose it. So it was helpful while I was going through. It got me through a tough situation. But as soon as the next tough situation came up, I was a mess again. So um, I ended up being prescribed some medications. One is a beta blocker. Traditional SSRIs are not something that really work for me, especially now that I have an ostomy because diarrhea is a very common side effect. So I have a fairly high output ostomy just as it is. So I really can't tolerate any more fluid loss. Um, So the SSRIs aren't going to work. So I do a beta blocker um, and I do take clonopin as needed um, when my anxiety is, you know, just a bit too much to manage. Um, So for harder days. Um, And I find that the combination of those two is quite helpful, but I I think I need to continue with therapy to really get through and process, you know, 
I want to say process some of the trauma. Um, I did a more trauma-based therapy and found it to be quite exhausting. So if you want to go that route, um, it's definitely something that you need to have time for, energy for, and with everything in my life and work, um, I found it to be just a bit too draining. I had a few great takeaways, um, a couple things that it helped resolve, but the strange thing for me is um, I've always had a little bit of like an OCD tendency. So it doesn't feel super tied to Crohn's, but I'm terrified of burning my house down. Leaving the house every single day is like one of the hardest things I do. I check and recheck things until the people around me have to kind of gently push me out of the house and remind me that, yes, your straightener's off. Yes, your the oven from last night is off. Okay, let's go. So I, it, it's something that I've struggled with, but I really think that my experiences with Crohn's, especially with how drastic those experiences have been, contribute to it. So feeling like completely out of control of your life makes you want to just grab on to any sense of control you have. So I become very rigid, can be very structured, and I feel like these fears and kind of like OCD tendencies really are sort of a manifestation of that because I feel like anytime I lose control, something awful happens. So the next thing I'm probably going to do is go back to more of a CBT focus type of therapy because the trauma-based, the emotional stuff I, I was hoping to work through, but again, found it to be quite exhausting, but I'm also a very logical person. So if we can just work at correcting some of those thoughts, identifying them and figuring out ways to remind ourselves, like, is this the most likely (laughs) scenario? Probably not. (laughs) So I've got work to do in that space. And I think it's great that I've been feeling well, because it gives me a bit more time to kind of focus on my mental health. And honestly, sharing on Instagram has been incredibly therapeutic. When did you start deciding that you wanted to share your story and start sharing on Instagram. I think Instagram is where you first started sharing. What prompted you to start opening up about your experience? Yeah, well, I mean, on my personal Instagram, I would occasionally like post a Crohn's hashtag. So I think the algorithm just sort of started feeding me different sort of Crohn's and colitis related accounts. Um, So kind of seeing other people brave enough to post their journeys Natalie Ann Hayden's account, I think, was probably one that I chose to follow, really enjoyed, and even reached out to her like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, any advice? (laughs) But also, you know, a lot of the dietitians that are on there. So I decided to create my account kind of in combination with becoming involved with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of Arizona. So I'd had a history of involvement and volunteerism with the Wisconsin chapter, but I hadn't yet gotten involved in the Arizona chapter. So it felt like the right time when I set up my fundraising page to also sort of point anybody who was looking at it to, hey, if you're interested, I'm also going to start sharing a little bit about my Crohn's journey. Partly, I also thought, you know, people on my Facebook and personal Instagram might not always be interested. So it was sort of an invitation to if this is something that you're interested in keeping up with, here's a space where I'm going to share these pieces of my life. And it's been great because I think on one end, 
getting all of those feelings that I've had inside out for the first time has been really therapeutic, but it's also really great to kind of have it reciprocated. So have people kind of come to you and say like, I've been through it too. I want to thank you for sharing. Here's my experience. And then, you know, you develop friendships. I can't, I can't tell you how many people in the UK I'm connected with right now. And Oh, I feel so behind because they get such a start on their day so much earlier than me. (laughs) Um, But it's been really cool. It's been really cool to connect. um, And it's been really cool to share and then have, you know, a few different unique opportunities to come up. Um, I was contacted by Thought Catalog um, and wrote a piece that I've not yet shared, but that's in the works. This is really cool um, and exciting for me. And then also the help app. So I was recently nominated as an ambassador and it's just another great place to connect with others with chronic illness and kind of share our tips and tricks, but also kind of form friendships and be that support. I saw that on your page. I wanted to ask you more about it. What is the help app? Is it a separate app to download? Is it an online space that people go to? Uh, Talk a little bit more about that and what you do as an ambassador for it. So, um, It is a separate app, and the goal of that app is to kind of promote community and connect you with others with similar conditions, others in similar stages of life. And I find, you know, we're already kind of doing that on Instagram, so I was skeptical, but it feels a little bit more intimate, right? Because it's not just sharing and commenting, it's having one-on-one conversations and developing these friendships And, you know, I just recently got started, um, but I've actually had some really great conversations, even met somebody that I follow on Instagram who's local. So we might actually meet in person. How cool is that? So it's been neat to connect with others in, it feels like a more one-on-one, more intimate space. Um, But there's other pieces of the app, like doctor recommendations, answering surveys. It seems like they're just trying to like harvest information um, to be another great sort of like patient-driven resource. They also do, you know, different campaigns around like raising awareness. Like for example, I shared about my experience going through all of this, um, mostly in graduate school recently. Um, And that was sort of driven by them as many people are starting college right now. So, I mean, I hope that some of my sharing reaches somebody who's going through that sort of thing right now. And they're like, "Mm, if she can do it, I can do it. I love that. Now, are you still active in the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation as well? So, um, yeah, I attend on my first take steps um, this past April, um, but also indicated interest and further involvement. So this year I'm on the planning committee. um, So I'll be involved in setting up the walk and, you know, recruiting people as either volunteers or participants. Excited about that. But I, I do think that after my next surgery, And once I'm fully healed, it is going to be a goal to do another half marathon with Team Challenge because it was such a positive experience for me, such an accomplishment. But I think like now that I'm at 
this place in my IBD journey and have accepted an ostomy as permanent, it would be a very meaningful experience to complete my first half marathon with an ostomy. And I wouldn't want to do it unless it was team challenge. I love that. So if people want to follow you and keep up with your journey, where can they find you online? We've talked about your Instagram quite a bit. So go ahead and tell us where to find you on the web. Yeah, well, it's just at Quartz Crohn's Corner, um, underscores between each word. That's really the only place that I'm currently active. Some people have asked if I might put up a blog or something. Maybe. (laughs) I'm just getting my feet wet at this point. I didn't really know what to expect, but I mean, the community and the connections have been so fantastic. So that's where you can find me. Um, always happy to chat, share, um, talk about your experiences too, um, and collaborate. It's a really great community. It is. I think the IBD community we have is has got to be one of the best. It's so open and honest and it's comforting. It's, we have some really great people. So thank you for being a part of it. And thank you for sharing your story today. We covered so much. You have an incredible history. Is there anything that we did not cover or talk about that you wanted to share, a final message that you wanted to to pass on to listeners? You know, I I feel like we covered a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just think, like, one thing I feel aware of as I um, am sharing is, like, we're all at different places in our journey. And right now I'm at a very happy and healthy place. So I would never want to come off as sort of minimizing the difficulty of the symptoms or, you know, the severity of surgery and how much that that is an adjustment and just a really serious thing to have happen in your life. But I hope that in sharing kind of like where I'm at now, like, through the tunnel on the other side, I hope that that gives some people hope if they're having a little bit of a tough time to know that it really does get better. And the flip side of that, too, is stay on top of your treatment. You know, if it's not working, don't accept a less a lesser quality of life just because you have the diagnosis. Because if you push and if you find your medication match or, you know, if you ultimately end up needing surgery, there can be relief. So you you don't have to accept feeling like crap all the time. No pun intended. (laughs) Very well said. And a great message and a great pun. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again so much for joining me today. I really appreciate this and have loved getting to know you and hearing your full story. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com where you can browse my featured products page to shop the companies I love and support. Make a donation using the Buy Me A Coffee link to send a little love or grab a copy of my book and IBD story, Crohn's Fitness Food and My Rocky Road to Health. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at story at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going.